0: Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, July 14th. I'm your host, Mike Maharry. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that famous line by Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? There's no place like home. Well, more and more countries seem to think that that's the case when it comes to their gold. Now, many central banks and sovereign wealth funds hold gold reserves in overseas vaults in London, New York, and also other Western nations. But there is a growing gold repatriation trend due to concerns about sanctions and security. In other words, countries are bringing their gold home. And these worries have increased significantly in recent months due to the way Western countries sanctioned Russia in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. According to an Invesco survey of central banks and sovereign wealth funds that came out this week, a quote, substantial share of central banks expressed concern about how the U.S. and other Western countries froze almost half of Russia's $650 billion in gold and forex reserves. As a result, 68% 68% of the banks surveyed said they are now keeping their gold reserves within their own country's borders. That was up from 50% in 2020. One central bank official who was quoted anonymously in the survey said, "Quote: We did have it held in London, but now we transferred it back to our country to hold as a safe haven asset and to keep it safe. Invesco head of official institutions, Rob Ringro, oversaw the survey, and he said the anonymous central banker reflected a widely held view. Quote, if it's my gold, then I want it in my country, has been the mantra we've seen in the last year or so, Ringro said. Now, you might recall that back in the very beginning of the war, I said that no matter what you think about the justification sanctions. Whether you think it's a good idea, a bad idea, you don't care. I said there could be blowback. Other countries are watching the way the U.S. and its allies handle their power. So, there you go. This is exactly what I was talking about. We're seeing this nervousness. We're seeing gold coming back within uh, countries' own borders. And, of course, We're also seeing this move toward de-dollarization, which is all part of this. In fact, the survey talked about the number of central banks and sovereign wealth funds that were concerned about the the trajectory of the dollar uh, for these same reasons, and also because of the growing U.S. national debt. So, you know, we're creating problems for ourselves in the way that we use economic power as foreign policy power. And again, you can we can debate whether that's uh, a good approach or a bad approach, but it's always important to understand and recognize that there can be blowback. And we're seeing that. And, and I think that this does not bode well for the dollar um, as we move forward. Now, looking at this survey a little deeper, the sanctions and the security aspects aren't the only worries. 85% of the sovereign wealth funds and 57 central banks surveyed indicate that they think price inflation is going to be higher in the next decade than it was in the last. Uh, This is from Ringro. He said, the funds and central banks are now trying to get to grips with higher inflation, and he called this a big sea of change. Nearly 80% of the 142 institutions surveyed cited geopolitical tensions as the biggest risk over the next decade, and 83% cited inflation as a huge concern over the next year. So as a result, they are fundamentally rethinking their strategies, and gold is perceived as a good bet in this environment. And again, that was from the survey. Now, Obviously, central banks and sovereign wealth funds have always included gold in their asset mix. And over the last several years, many central banks have been adding more gold to their reserves. According to the 2023 Central Bank Gold Reserve Survey that was released by the World Gold Council earlier this year, 24% of central banks plan to further increase Gold reserves in the next 12 months. So that's a quarter. And 71% of central banks surveyed believe the overall level of global gold reserves will increase over the next year. And that was actually a 10% or a 10 point increase over that same survey in 2022. So, you know, kind of backing up and looking at the, at the big picture and what does this mean to us? Well, gold repatriation underscores the importance of holding physical gold. Actual metal where you can easily access it. You know, we have gold backed exchange traded funds, we have, you know, paper gold, and they do have their place in the investment world. But true security and stability come from the physical possession of precious metals. You know, if you can't hold it in your hand, you don't really possess it. And that's exactly what these central banks are saying. If our gold is way off in London somewhere and we can't easily get our hands on it, we don't necessarily really possess it. And that's exactly why they're bringing their gold home, to keep it safe within their own vaults. Now, there are various ways that you can store precious metals if you are a precious metals investor. Shift Gold can help you with that. Uh, if you go to shiftgold.com, uh, there's actually a place in there where we give some tips on storage and uh, a Shift Gold precious metals specialist can help with that as well. Okay, yes, we are going to get into the June CPI data here in a minute, but got to be honest, I get a little tired talking about the Fed, talking about inflation, because I feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. So, I thought I would start with uh, some gold news today with the uh, with that survey. And uh, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, gold's performance in the first half of this year. By the way, the aforementioned CPI report gave gold a pretty Good boost this week, and it closed above the 1950 level yesterday. Uh, when I started recording the podcast, it was at like 1956 this morning, so still holding that level. Now we'll see if it can hold as we move into the Fed meeting in a couple of weeks. Uh, but for now, dollar weakness and the expectation that the inflation fight is in the final round has uh, put some pretty strong tailwinds behind gold. Now speaking of that price, despite the lackluster June, and June was rough for gold, uh, the price of the yellow metal actually rose 5.4 percent through the first six months of 2023, and it actually outperformed all but two major investment asset classes. Uh, gold closed at 1912.25 on June 30th, and and. By that, you can see uh, the nice rally that we've had uh, with the uh, with the lower than expected CPI print. uh, We're up like almost forty bucks from that point. Um, Looking at the first six months of the year, gold outperformed emerging market stocks. It outperformed the U.S. dollar. It outperformed U.S. bonds. It outperformed global bonds. It outperformed. Uh, Other commodities, it outperformed oil. The only asset class that outperformed gold in the first half of the year was uh, developed market stocks, primarily driven by the U.S. stock market rally, and Peter Schiff talked about that in his podcast uh, this week. I'll link to it in the show notes page, Uh, he talked about how this really looks like it was a bear market rally in stocks, and he does not expect it to continue. So you can check that out if you want to get a little bit of Peter's take on stocks. So anyway, through the first half of the year, Gold enjoyed this healthy 5% plus gain despite some significant headwinds. Interestingly, the World Gold Council has what they call the Gold Return Attribution Model, or the GRAM, G-R-A-M. And it's basically a statistical breakdown of the main factors driving the monthly changes in the spot gold price uh, based on four drivers that have been shown to reliably explain gold's price behavior since 2007. And those four things are economic expansion, opportunity cost, Uh, risk and momentum. So basically what it is, it's a model that they use to kind of project where should gold go given these current um, factors. So based on the gram, uh, it would have projected that gold dropped 4% during the first half of the year. So you can see that gold actually outperformed Uh, where you would expect, given the factors in finance and the economy. Um, Some of the factors that pressured gold lower through the first half of the year, uh, there were several of them, bond yields, were at higher levels through much of the year. And this typically creates a drag on gold demand as investors uh, look to put money into that higher yielding asset. Uh, Dollar strength also worked against gold, although the impact has been less significant than it was last year. Um, Dollar strength versus the yen, the Canadian dollar, and the Australian dollar was offset somewhat by weakness against the euro. And you actually have a situation now where the European Central Bank is... tightening uh, at a little bit faster pace. Everybody seems to think the Fed is close to being done tightening. The ECB is still in the process, so you're seeing um, uh, some strength in the yen versus the dollar. Um, Price momentum to the downside. So, we had the uh, dropping price and uh, the gold ETF outflows also pressured gold, particularly in the last two months of the second quarter. Uh, As I said, June was was a pretty rough month for the price, and nevertheless, we still managed to maintain a a solid gain through the first half of the year. Uh, Central bank gold buying and risk hedging, particularly during the banking meltdown in March, really helped support the price of gold in the first half of the year and offset these headwinds. Um, So, The trajectory of gold through the last half of this year, as we move forward, is going to largely depend on how the Fed moves forward in its rate hiking, and more importantly, whether or not something breaks in the economy before the end of the year. Uh, If you look at the uh, World Gold Council's projections for the last half of the year—they're uh, kind of uh, taking the mainstream take that we're going to have maybe a minor downturn in the economy as we move into the last half of the year—and um, and they expect gold to still continue to remain uh, to remain. Strong moving forward, uh, but but maybe have a, a little bit of, of continuing headwinds. And, and they really see kind of a range bound situation. And I think they're right um, to the extent that things kind of continue as they are today. Uh, you know, if, if, if we kind of just keep limping along with blah economic data, uh, you know, and, and uh, the Fed continues to tighten or holds rates up, I do think that we're not going to see the big breakout. You know, uh, again, like the World Gold Council, the markets are still locked into this narrative that the Fed is going to beat price inflation with only a mild economic downturn, and really until that sentiment changes, I think gold is going to stay in this kind of range-bound, you know, between $1,900 2000 dollars, assuming, of course, we don't have some big geopolitical event in the meantime that stokes a lot of safe haven demand. Um, Interesting little piece of news that I saw yesterday. Apparently, President Biden has called up uh, military reserve units um, and uh, the the Atlantic Resolve, I think, is what the um, the mission is called. Basically, supporting Ukraine. So you know, if we have World War III, that could certainly impact uh, the trajectory of gold. But as I said, I think that we're going to kind of stay in this doldrum until something breaks in the economy. And all of this leads us into the June CPI data. So let's go ahead and break that down and talk about that. Now, I think this lower-than-expected inflation report card was a giant gift wrapped up in a huge red bow for the Federal Reserve. It gives the central bank a plausible excuse to back off of its inflation fight. But make no mistake, inflation isn't dead, and it's not buried. So, let's dig into the numbers. On an annual basis, CPI increased by 3% in June. Now, of course, this was the headline number because it sounds pretty low, especially when you compare it with the 9.1% print we were looking at just a year ago and the headlines were amplified by the fact that the actual reading came in slightly lower than the 3.1% estimate, and it compares with a 4% reading in May. So we saw almost a 1% drop, or we did see a 1% drop in that annual inflation number. Now, prices have not stopped going up. On a monthly basis, they actually increased slightly faster in June, than they did in May. We had a 0.2% month-on-month increase in the CPI, and that compared to a 0.1% increase in prices uh, last month. So you could technically say price inflation got hotter in June, but you ain't never going to see that headline. If we strip out the more volatile food and energy prices core CPI, Actually, still is in the hot category, but I will grant you that it did show some signs of cooling. Month on month, core CPI rose by just 0.2 percent, um, and the annual increase in the core was 4.8 percent. Both of those numbers were also slightly below projections. So they were projecting cooling CPI data, and they got that and it actually was a little bit lower than even what the projections were. And and I think that amplified this sense that, okay, we're done, inflation's on the run, right? Um, That month-on-month core reading of 0.2% was actually the lowest uh, core CPI of the year. Now, it remains to be seen if this was a trend or an outlier. We've seen In this data, how you can have months where it's really low and then it pops up again. So um, we we need more than this one number to call this a trend. Uh, If we look at the monthly increases so far in 2023, it really reveals that core CPI has been sticky, uh, the June number notwithstanding. Uh, It rose on a monthly basis by 0.4% in January, 0.5% in February, 0.4% in March, 04 percent 4% in April, 0.4% in May, and then we had the 0.2% print this month. So you can see that the 0.2% is an outlier. Is this a change in the trend or just a one-off? We'll find out as we move forward. Uh, If you take all of those numbers and you average it, you've got a 0.38% per month increase in the course, almost 4% if you round. And we're looking at a 4.6% annual core CPI if you take uh, those six readings and extrapolate them out for an entire year. So that's still way above double the Fed's 2% target. To put the core number into perspective, the annual core CPI increase in June 2022, so a year ago, was 5.9%. So, we've gone for, from 5.9% to, what did I say, 4.6? Yeah, 4.6%. Um, so, it's down, but it's not down a lot. It's not down nearly as much as that headline, which has dropped from 9% all the way down to 3%. So if you go by the core CPI, and of course everybody swears core is a better price inflation gauge because it's less volatile. So if you go by that core, you have to conclude that price inflation hasn't dropped nearly as much as the headline number indicates. It's not nearly as good of news as you would get from the headlines. Now, again, I'm going to grant you that it is showing some cooling and with 5% uh interest rates with a tepid but still real decrease in the Fed balance sheet, you would expect some of that uh, price inflation to to be tamped down a little bit. I mean, uh, and, and we've seen it. Uh, if, it's interesting, if you go back and you look at the um, – credit card data, the consumer debt data that also came out this week. I'll link to that in the show notes page as well. I didn't really plan to talk on this, but it just went in my head. So I want to kind of bring this up to um, to make a point. If you look at the consumer credit data for the month of May, so that was the, the most recent data that's been released by the Fed, credit card debt still going up very fast. Uh, I think the annual increase in May was somewhere in the eight point, 5, 8.8% range. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was over 8%. Um, And typically, you would be down closer in the 3% increase range uh, if you look at the numbers like prior to the pandemic. So, we're still running really hot in terms of Consumers using credit cards, even with credit card interest rates over 20%. But if you look at non revolving credit, so this is primarily auto loans, student loans, and loans for big ticket items. So, like if you go buy a mattress or an appliance, this is non revolving credit. Um, That actually contracted in May. First contraction that we've seen uh, in ages, but We've seen this downward trend in non-revolving credit for the last several months. So, what that's telling you is that people aren't spending as much money on big-ticket items, right? They're they're trying to save. They've rolled back their spending, which is what you would expect as interest rates increase and it becomes hard, harder to borrow. And yet, they're still running up huge credit card bills because... Prices are still going up. Prices are still high. People are still trying to make ends meet with credit cards because they don't have a choice. It's a really interesting dynamic in that um, consumer debt market. So, I'll link to that in the show notes page. Um, I've gotten way off track of what I intended to talk about um, or or where I was, but sometimes that happens because I think of things. Um, But, you know, basically all of that to say uh, that we should expect to see some contraction in price inflation with the Fed's inflation fight—it's not like they haven't fought it at all. The point that I've been trying to make is they haven't—they haven't killed it, right? Uh, It's—it's it's down, but it's certainly not out. Um, and of course, you know, if you—if you notice, all of these numbers are above the two percent inflation target. Now, I have to do my monthly CPI discussion disclaimer. Disclaimer: Every time I talk about the CPI, I bring this point up. Price inflation is worse than the government data suggests. And I say this every month. The CPI uses a formula that understates the actual rise in prices. They changed the formula in the 90s to make inflation, price inflation, look lower than it actually is. Um, If you use... The CPI formula that they were using back in the 1970s, CPI is actually closer to double the official number. So when you see 3%, it's really more like 6 or 7%. Uh, so keep that in mind. Inflation is worse than what you're being told. Now, kind of breaking down the uh, the numbers, big drops in energy prices have really helped bring the overall CPI down. Broadly speaking, energy prices have dropped by 16.7% year-on-year. Year. Gasoline prices are 26.5% lower than they were this time last year. So this is really skewing that headline inflation number, right? We're seeing this energy price drop. Meanwhile, other prices are still going up. So that's definitely part of the big effect on uh, the CPI data. If you look at the categories outside of energy, the only prices that fell on a monthly basis in June were used cars and commodities. Um, I mentioned this when I talked about the May CPI report last month. This is important. Um, The big drop in headline cpi is partly a function of math i've talked about this before on the show as well but again it's important to reiterate this and we have new people listening to the show all the time there was a huge 1.2 percent month-on-month increase this time last year in the cpi and that dropped out of the calculation for this year so that brings the yearly average way down we actually explained this in an article uh after the April CPI data came out, predicting that we were going to see some big drops in the headline number because um, of the math. But as we move forward from here, math is going to turn on the CPI calculation. So, May and June, uh, they charted the biggest increases in month-on-month CPI of this whole cycle. Uh, it was 0.9% and 1.2% respectively. Now, again, those numbers have dropped out of the annual average. And you know, if you do math, if you have a, a string of numbers, it's an average, and you drop out bigger numbers and put in smaller numbers, uh, you're going to have a huge drop in that average. And that's exactly why we're seeing these big drops in the headline numbers. Um, the numbers falling off over the next few months are going to be much smaller. Meaning, you, what I'm saying is don't plan on seeing a, another 1% drop uh, in the annual CPI. Don't think that you're going to uh, get a report you know, next month where they say, oh, it's 2%. That's not going to happen. Math is not going to let it work like that. Um, unless we like have massive disinflation, uh, that's just not in the cards. So, as I already mentioned, this uh, cool CPI report was just exactly what the Fed ordered. Now, again, they can plausibly argue that they've reined in price inflation, and this will be particularly important if something else in the economy crashes in the near future. Now, remember, interest rates going up very fast have already created a financial crisis. We saw the banking issue, and I know everybody's kind of forgotten that, and I think a lot of people think, oh, well, that was just a little blip. It's over. No big deal. No, that banking financial crisis is still going on. If you look at the Fed balance sheet, there are still a lot of banks that are tapping into those bailout loans. So that's still a problem. They just papered over it uh, with a bailout program, and they managed to plug that hole in the dam. Uh, That's the analogy that I've been kind of using. We had a crack in the dam, and they managed to to close that up. But where's the next crack going to be? there's going to be another crack at some point. And that's when the Fed is really going to have to make the decision whether or not they're going to hold the line on the inflation fight, keep interest rates high longer, as Jerome Powell is claiming they're going to do, or if they turn and start uh, easing monetary policy. This gives them the excuse that they need. If that happens, to plausibly say, you know what, we're done hiking, inflation's under control, we've got to fix the economy, save the economy. CNBC uh, summed it up this way, quote, The numbers could give the Federal Reserve some breathing room as it looks to bring down inflation that was running around 9% annual rate at this time in 2022, the highest since November 1981. Now, as you know, if you follow these things, the central bankers over at the Fed have been talking tough about staying in the inflation fight, but their actions undercut their rhetoric. And we talked about this extensively in the last show, Uh, but they're still doing it. Just last week, Dallas Fed President Lori Logan said that the continued above-target inflation outlook and a stronger-than-expected labor market, quote, calls for more restrictive monetary policy. But, as I talked about extensively in last week's show, if inflation is such a concern, why didn't they raise rates at the June meeting? You know, nothing was different in terms of the economic picture in June. We were hearing the same rhetoric in June, but they stood pat and didn't raise rates. And why aren't they shrinking the balance sheet faster? I mean, they haven't hit the monthly target for shedding mortgage-backed securities one time since announcing the plan back in May 2022. Not one time. And that plan wasn't exactly ambitious to start with. So, if inflation is the big fear, why is the Fed slow-walking the inflation fight? And again, I talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. It's almost like they want to talk about an inflation fight. But they don't really want to be in an inflation fight. I think I used this analogy last week. I like it. I'm going to use it again. It's like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg talking about getting in the octagon to have this big MMA fight. You know, it's cool to talk about. Funny. But I don't think either one of those dudes really wants to start throwing punches. So, this is what I think is going on. I think this big talk, little action stance is because Jerome Powell and his minions realized that high interest rates will eventually break something in the economy. I mean, heck, even their own economists have warned about a looming catastrophe. I talked about this in a previous show. We had this Fed paper that came out talking about the number of companies that are in financial distress on the verge of default because of these higher interest rates. So, they know I think this reveals the ugly reality. The Fed is wedged between a rock and a hard place. It needs to appear to be fighting hot price inflation. But the central bankers also don't want to wreck the economy, right? So, they're talking tough. And they've got their fingers crossed and they're hoping against hope that CPI is going to cool down enough for them to back down on that inflation fight when it becomes necessary. And they're also hoping that the recession that everybody knows is coming will come far enough out that they can plausibly say, yes, we have victory over inflation and now we need to declare war on the recession. And they may have gotten their wish. Again, this CPI gives them that wiggle room to plausibly back. Out of the inflation fight. They can say, problem solved, and they can pivot back to more uh, loose monetary policy. But the problem isn't solved, no matter what the CPI data says today. Now, Peter Schiff made a good point in a tweet. He said, declines in the CPI are weakening the dollar and raising the price of commodities, including oil. Uh, and, and this is going to raise trade deficits. Uh, it's going to cause commodity prices to go up. And this will cause future CPI gains to spike even higher. And more fundamentally than that, price inflation is just a symptom of the real problem. And that real problem is trillions of dollars that were created out of thin air and injected into the economy over the last decade plus. They haven't solved that at all. While the money supply has contracted, certainly contracted enough to precipitate a recession, um, and it has... Restricted enough to suppress some of the price increases for the time being, it hasn't done anything to remove the $8 trillion the central bank has injected over the last decade plus. Most of that money is still out there sloshing around. That's the inflation. That's the inflation that is causing price inflation. So, when something does ultimately break in the economy, and it will, the Fed will almost certainly start creating even more inflation with rate cuts and quantitative easing, because they're going to be able to say, oh, we beat inflation. Look, it's close to 2%. We've got this recession. We've got to stimulate the economy, because that's what they do. To use the Fed's terminology, I think this cooling price inflation is transitory. It's just a matter of time. How much time? I have no idea. I wrote an article based on an interview I ran across with Jim Grant. He's one of my favorite financial analysts. And in this interview, he said he thinks we're on the verge of a bear market in bonds that could last for years. In fact, he called it a generational bear market in bonds. Now, what would that mean? Well, it would mean much higher interest rates on bonds, even if the Fed tries to cut. Now, Remember, bond interest rates are inversely correlated to bond prices. So, if demand for bonds drop, or the supply of bonds in the market increases significantly, bond prices are going to fall, and yields are going to rise. Basic economics. So, a bear market in bonds would mean uh, that people aren't buying bonds. It would mean the price would drop, and it would push interest rates higher. Now, think about how many bonds... The Treasury is pouring into the market right now in order to finance huge budget deficits. Remember, we had $800 billion plus in bond issuance in June alone. On top of that, the dollar is falling. The dollar index dropped below 100 on Thursday for the first time in quite a while. So... Anyway, I'll get to the article I wrote about that interview, or I'll link to it in the show notes page, but something Jim Grant said really struck me. He said, what is inevitable is always certain, but it's not always punctual. Let me say that again. What is inevitable is always certain, but it's not always punctual. He went on and he said, I look back on some of my work and I was rather impatient for the inevitable difficulties and crises attending upon this credit creation jag. I thought certainly it was going to happen like Tuesday or so. So, it's like the elapsed time between the first signs of house prices going way above trend on the one hand and the onset of the housing related credit difficulties of 2007, 2008, and 2009. So, this is exactly the point that I've been hammering on for months. We live in a microwave world, right? 30 second sound bites, but things in the economy play out slowly. We see a Fed rate cut or a Fed rate hike, and we expect an instantaneous change in the economy. No, things play out slowly. We know certain things will happen based on economics. Again, what is inevitable is certain, but we don't know how long it will take. It is not always punctual, and it is very hard to predict timing because everything's fine, and then it's not. So, what I do know is that We need to be prepared before something happens, right? You need to have your insurance before the storm. So if you're thinking that you might want to add gold or silver to your portfolio or increase your positions, now is the time. Not when the crisis starts to unfold because prices are going to rise very quickly. I still say that with gold under $2,000 an ounce, with silver still well below $30 an ounce, these are buying opportunities. So if you're thinking about it, talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist. Call one eight 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 gold 160 or you can email info at shiftgold.com, or you can go to the Shift Gold website, shiftgold.com, and you can chat. With a precious metal specialist just go to the getting started tab and you can talk to them right there these guys are fantastic and they'll help you look at your investment strategy where you are your portfolio and help you see how or even if precious metals will fit into your investment strategy if you're not quite ready if you're still wondering uh you can download our new fully revised and updated Wi-Fi Gold Now report. There's a link to that on the show notes page. Um, you can also find it on the Ship website. It's free PDF download, uh, multiple pages of information history and uh, projections. So check that out and then call a Ship Cold Precious Metal Specialist. With that, we're going to call it a gold wrap for the week. And, of course, you can get more details on all of these stories and more. Keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. You can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap over at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the Shift Gold YouTube channel, and other podcast places. Links to all of these things. Plus, our social media pages are on the show notes page. I hope you have an awesome and fantastic weekend. And I will be back to talk to y'all again next week.